I'm Greg Daller-Coltman. Welcome to Ellipses Thinking, a podcast dedicated to exploring the nature of the creative journey in process. If an ellipses builds the perfect bridge from where we have been and are now to where we're next meant to be, then what intrigues me most lives between those three tiny dots. Three-time world improv champion and funnyman Donovan Workin has been bringing his comedy into the lives of audiences on stage, film, and across the airwaves for over 30 years, and is currently touring in the lead role of the runaway musical hit Jason Kenney's Hot Boy Summer. His comedy duo, Atomic Improv, has toured the world and are the first improv group to headline Montreal's Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. A lead writer and performer for seven seasons on the hit CBC Radio 1 series, The Irrelevant Show, Donovan has also had the pleasure of performing live alongside Mike Myers, Wayne Brady, Colin Mockery, Dave Thomas, Joe Flaherty, and Kevin McDonald. And this summer, he is thrilled to be opening for Amy Schumer and Pete Davidson. Like any true improviser, Donovan has always embraced a yes-let's attitude to life and is grateful for the doors that have opened as a result of accepting all offers. In our conversation, he returns time and time again to the lessons that he has learned through improvisation, lessons that have served him not just in his art, but in every day of his life. Lessons that invite us to accept that we will make mistakes, we will look foolish, and that we will be wrong. And when we do so, we emerge stronger and perhaps wiser. And without intending to demonstrate, we got off to a giddy start with a bit of a recording glitch. Oh, oh, we're in. <laughs> that was strange. <laughs> that didn't bode well. Oh, <laughs> 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 yes, and happy April Fool's Day. So welcome and thank you for joining in this conversation on April Fool's Day, a day that we traditionally celebrate laughter and the spirit of uh, of the clown. Um, I just wonder, do you, have a, do you have an April Fool's memory, something that you just can't shake? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I know. That's one of the things I don't celebrate April Fool's Day because I think pretty much every day is... Uh, <laughs> is a day for celebrating the fool. Um, I guess when I was younger, it was funner to do little pranks and stuff, but I feel like we're in a world of everybody pranking each other for a good bit on TikTok, And uh, it's kind of upsetting now. It's too much. You yeah. never know when somebody's going to get hurt or it's just, yeah. <laughs> just stop. Leave it to the yeah, professionals. It does, a, <laughs> it does have a kind of a mean spiritedness to it. Even as I was as as I was preparing to, to you know that that question, I thought, well, I'm not even sure I have a, a funny memory. Uh, you know, everybody ends up feeling foolish, but yeah, uh, but yeah. painfully so. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a funny thing, right? The, the little pranks that uh, I guess. Well, and as we move further and further into enlightenment, I guess we've. Um, you know, being mean spirited used to be funny. Like comedy used to be based on other people's suffering and misery. Um, and you know, mm. you've got to be more clever and uh, interesting now. So, Donovan, you, I mean, from our preliminary conversations, you know that this podcast sort of explores the spaces between a beginning and an end. And and uh, so, so I want to start by asking uh, you, as someone who has dedicated your life to making others laugh, when did you first discover that you could be funny. 
Oh, that's yeah. What an it, that's that's it wasn't so much that. Well, that's a great question. I think it would be going to family events and watching my uncles and aunts, uh, watching them be funny. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I've got a really funny family. Uh, and I really admire and respect that. I had my aunts, uh, and I'm, I've got that as well. They have like this infectious laugh. They would laugh so hard. Um, and it was such a good, full, cathartic laugh. Um, yeah. And I loved that. And it was kind of addictive. I watch my uncles do funny things and all my aunts laugh or watching my dad cry. He was laughing so hard as a kid um, at things that his family would do. Um, and then, I, uh, yeah, and that became addictive. I used to, when I was a really small kid, I remember my parents would have parties um, and uh, I would just sit um, on the stairs and just listen to them. And, I, you know, you could hear the droning of people talking and then the laugh and then the drone and the laugh. Or I would go to bed and I would lie there and listen to my family have parties with their friends and family. And uh, that would help me fall asleep as a kid. And I think maybe that's where it started, just that it's comforting and it's part of who I am. And um, now that's what I love to do. Um, mm. yeah. So what makes you laugh? You know, I, it's evolving. When I've, it used to be things that were normal, that normal people would find funny. Uh, and then as you start, you get a little desensitized to stuff. Uh, and so things have to be a little edgier, a little different. Um, so yeah, there's some things that are, that are pretty dark that make me laugh. Um, but then on the other side, I'm also finding that things make me feel uh, sweet. Things make me feel really warm and happy as well, whereas they never used to. So I think that uh, my edgy comedy um, is also tempered um, by a, uh, like a, just a warm sweetness that I find in things. And maybe that's age. I don't know, but uh, yeah, you appreciate little things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you know, when I first met you, um, you you were, <laughs> and I and I think I think back to that, and I and I wonder, um, you know, when we're when we're looking at a at a young and very impressionable um, kid, mm -hmm. uh, a teenager, I, I, I get the sense you may have been discovering a shift from the class clown um, to to you know a more personal or performance uh, based clown, and and I'm I'm curious to know. Uh, how you define clown now and uh and and the role that the clown plays in 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 everyday life yeah um that's true yeah i was kind of a class clown and i was the kid that talked too much and then uh i discovered drama and uh uh T tammy was my grade eight drama teacher believe it or not and well you know no. that i'm sure and uh that's where i all of a sudden went click and i was like oh i can make people laugh uh, if I want to, uh, but then there's more to it. And it, that became interesting to me. Uh, and it took years and years and years for me to, and I'm still learning, obviously, I love to learn, uh, but to go from, you know, just being funny to uh, being an artist, I suppose, um, which is, you know, super important. Um, my clown that comes out on a daily, well, uh, I bought a Burger Baron sign and put it on my house, right? <laughs> uh, so that was kind of a big one. Uh, and that evolved from me going, um, my niece 
called me and said, hey, the Burger Baron on White Avenue in Edmonton is closing down. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a part of Edmonton history. I'm going to stop in with my kids and have a burger and say hi to the owner and stuff. And when I got there, there were four or five people crying that were buying burgers because it was so much part, uh, so much a part of their life. And I was like, oh, wow. So I thought, how can I continue to help keep this joy alive? And I saw that sign and I was like, well, that's ridiculous. I'll buy that and put it on my house and it will be a beacon of flavor and spice for my neighborhood. Um, I mean, that's kind of a big example, but um, yeah, as I get older, I'm my dad. So um, I'm starting to make dad jokes, little jokes here and there. Um, I always want to see somebody's reaction, you know, whether it's like a, oh my, or a laugh or, uh, you know, like today I went to buy a few groceries and uh, a guy was walking in front of me and he had grabbed a packet of spice or something and it was flipping off his cart and he was juggling it, trying to get it. And I was cheering. I just started cheering him on. Uh, and he didn't know how to take me at first. And then he was like, I was like, old man, you got the jam. And he was like, thank you. <laughs> and so making uh, somebody stay is really, really important to me. Yeah. So, And that doesn't yeah. always have to be uh, being funny, but it's just being intuitive. Um, a big thing about, being, uh, about improv is uh, – I hyper-focus on listening uh, naturally now, not just obviously with my ears, um, but with my eyes and then with my heart. I try to understand why people are, not why, how they came about to have those feelings, right? Whether it's culturally or through life experience, because we're all so diverse and we have to live together. Uh, and, And I think... Um, understanding our differences is super, super important. It, that's what makes us the same. Uh, and so, yeah, so I really focus on listening with my eyes, my ears, and my heart. And naturally, I just do it everywhere. So I just catalog yeah. everything. My brain just absorbs uh, information all the time. And it makes it easy yeah. to make jokes when you take it all in. Well, and there's there's something even in the story about walking behind this fella. The word celebrate came up. I mean, you know, this yeah. is the moment of just celebrating his human effort, which which, yeah. which wasn't planned. No. And you were just in it together. Yeah. And it was a spectacular fail that he saved. You know, he had knocked it off the shelf and then he had no idea it was there. It's nine o'clock in the morning. There's maybe four people in this entire store. Uh, and he deserved to be celebrated at that moment because he achieved something amazing <laughs> and probably way yeah. out of character for him being in downtown Calgary. Juggling is <laughs> definitely not his job. <laughs> not, not, not a thing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so you brought up improvisation. You've spent a life um, improvising. Yeah. And I mean, there's going to be some people that are listening to this that perhaps think of improvisation just as a, as, as a thing that an artist does um, or, or that it's a performative, you know, yeah. strategy. Yeah. Like a jazz musician uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 But uh, it, it talk to us a little bit about what it, it really is, regardless of who you are. Cause I think that the story you just shared was a, was, was proof of the fact that we improvise moment by moment by moment every day of our lives you don't have to be an artist yeah absolutely i mean some of the most amazing things um that i've learned as an improviser and it's one thing i always say is embrace the suck like if you're gonna fail embrace it fail big um and find the joy in that because it's the mistakes in life that make you learn 
right? If you get in that kind of safe zone where nothing goes wrong in your life, uh, that's a pretty boring life. So one of the biggest things um, I've learned is to really embrace um, failures. Uh, and I, like, for instance, I was walking at West Ham in a mall one time and I, out of the blue, this is not a lie, I slipped on a banana peel. And, <laughs> and But it was such a slow because I slid and hopped and hopped and hopped and then eventually fell on the ground. And I lied there laughing so hard um, because it was the most brilliant thing. Instantly, my my eye went to watching my body do this thing. And I was yeah. like, wow, that was fantastic. Uh, I loved it so much. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of times people don't take the time to enjoy silliness and uh, because we're, we're becoming so serious. And so as an improviser, I've spent, uh, well, 32 years, over probably 40 years now uh, improvising. Um, you know, I've created my own form of improv that gets taught all over the world now. Uh, and it's because um, I just love the idea of creating a story instantly. I'm mm -hmm. a writer more than I am a performer. Um, and to be able to have that beginning, that middle, that end, do some full circle storytelling all while you're just thinking on your feet and, you know, and you know, all the, the key kind of phrases like living in the moment, like keeping it real. Um, all those things are just life lessons that I use um, all the time, not just uh, when I'm on stage. Uh, and I'm lucky enough that it's my job that I get to perform for people uh, this amazing art form that a lot of people, you know, respect wise. I don't know, if, you know, a lot of people make fun of the improviser, but um, it's a, it's an amazingly powerful tool for actors, for dentists, for lawyers, for um, everybody, because you get to explore. Uh, you're in a safe space. Um, it's okay to fail. It's encouraged. Um and you learn together and nobody's making a mistake. It's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I can't get it out of my head that I don't really want my dentist to improvise. And at the same time, yeah. if something goes massively wrong, yeah, I do. I don't want yeah. him to just throw yeah, the yeah. drill aside and say, yeah. uh, sorry, pal. But I, I recall uh, the opportunity to work with a group of lawyers mm -hmm. on a, a charity, on a charity show a few years back and the joy um, of watching uh, their their sense of of tiptoeing into that place where you yeah. know where, where lawyers are not that's not what they do they're not allowed to fail publicly they yeah. fail publicly and it and it can have some dire consequences <laughs> yeah absolutely but I, you know i never never forget um an email sent to me by one of the by one of the participants and he was a retired judge and and it was just this this incredible uh sense of of admiration and appreciation for what we had engendered in the community. Mm -hmm. and, and he ended the email by saying, you know, the legal profession could probably do with a little bit more of this. And yeah. it was just a sense of, of wonder that, uh, that the possibility of, of playing. Yeah. I did a workshop for some crown prosecutors. Um, and uh, that is, I said, I said to them, I said, you know, honestly, your job and my job is exactly the same. And they were like, how so? I said, well, you've got to tell a compelling story. It has to have mm -hmm. a beginning, a middle and an end. You have to be convincing. Um, and you've got to cut out the garbage. You've got to get straight to the point, right? Uh, and that's one of the things that a lot of people don't do when they're improvising is they, um, they meander and they add too much information, right? I always found that uh, improv is an economy of words and motion. 
say what you want to say, uh, move it forward, um, and uh, embrace in the moment what's happening and always advance. Um, and they were like, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing in trial. We want we want to tell a convincing story that has a beginning, middle, and end because people have to understand it. Um, we have to get straight to the point so it's clear and concise and simple. Um, and we have to be compelling. And, uh, mm. and that's what I try to do when I'm on stage. And then I make some jokes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which they may or may not find to be a, an important part of their repertoire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That part the lawyers may or may not use. That's, that's, that's option B. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> through the course of this, I've heard, um, a number of the key elements and phrases. And in fact, you know, the words that you use in the world of improvisation, the one I haven't heard is yes. And I, and, and, and I know that you have lived your life <laughs> saying yes. Yeah. Um, what, <laughs> what have you found as you've gotten older um, to be to be most challenging about saying yes when yes is always the default to every great idea. Yeah, well, in life and art, saying yes, yeah, I've lived uh, definitely for over twenty years. I've concentrated on on living a yes philosophy, and I, I try to always put myself in a situation where I'm surrounded by people that. Um, I can trust or are supportive um, so that I know when I'm saying yes to an idea that I'll be, you know, it's an, it comes from a safe space, but mm. that pain in my stomach of uh, nervousness. Um, uh, it's funny because the human brain doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. It's the exact same chemicals. So yeah. it's your brain, it's your mentality, it's your attitude that changes it from fear to excitement. Um, and so if something scares me, um, I have to say yes to it. And so th that's been fairly, fairly good. <laughs> um, <laughs> my doctor has told me that my yes, uh, let's attitude is a little detrimental that I need to sometimes say no. Um, you know, but, uh, and not because I'm like, you know, partying and doing crazy drugs or stuff. It's just that, um, I, uh, like I burn out my serotonin and all my good drugs so fast because I'm always up and on and, and wanting to, do more and try more. Uh, and so he had taught me to walk the dog and stare at trees. And I thought that was ridiculous until I did it. And then my whole world changed. And, uh, and I'm sure the people at the dog park are just seeing a dog running around barking while this middle-aged dude is just staring at a poplar tree about an inch from the bark, just in his own zen <laughs> wondering if he's yeah, <laughs> if he's having some kind of, yeah, uh, either existential of crisis or a stroke. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's amazing. So, uh, yeah, but saying as I get older, saying yes is harder because, um, especially, I guess I've become more established, and uh, you know I have a reputation, and I, I, of course I want to continue to do good work. Um, so that fear of failure, the the stakes get higher, right? And we always talk about raising the stakes in storytelling, and so. Um, it's really important to, you know, you're only as good as your last project, but that's okay. Stay humble, um, continue to learn and trust yourself, right? Like the only person looking out after you is you. Um, and if you trust yourself and, and you know, think positively, um, if you succeed, brilliant. That's great. You've learned something and you've made it and it's awesome. Uh, if you fail, that's great and amazing because now you've learned something that you can, you've learned a harder lesson, a better lesson. Uh, you've learned more uh, and you can apply that the next time. And then hopefully your success rate goes up and you continue to 
to get better and better and better. And that's, I mean, that's what I strive to do. So, but I'm running out of time. I'm 52 now. Can't learn it all. <laughs> running out of time. So I'm going to take a take a a real left turn on running out of time because uh, as those of, of us who follow you on social media will know that there is another passion completely separate perhaps from comedy, but one you cannot say no to. And you say yes every time that iconic tongue uh, image of the Rolling Stones oh appears. So <laughs> take us down that path because, yeah. because I mean, I've heard, I've heard of the, I've heard of the, 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 phenomena where people cannot stop going to see Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. They're grateful. You're going all over, yeah. You're going all over the world for the stones. Yeah. Well, it's one of the, it's an odd, it's a real addiction. It's an actual addiction. I, um, uh, my brother passed away when I was 13 and I inherited, he was a little older than me uh, and I inherited his records and he had like, you know, the Led Zeppelin, the doors, all those kind of seventies classics. Uh, and then he had some Rolling Stones records in there. And I was like, Oh, put these on. I knew who they were. Uh, and I was just uh, amazed by the music and it kind of was spoke to me. And uh, yeah. And then there was a era, you know, in my formative years when I was 15 to 17 or whatever, when you really get into music, uh, they were breaking up. They weren't touring and all that sort of thing. Uh, and then in the late 80s, they decided to go on tour and it was just like a switch. It was like, I, I'm definitely going to go see them. And then I just couldn't get enough. I had to continue to say yes and see them more and more and more. And I get a little panicky. I know they're going on tour in Europe for 15 dates or something. And I get panicky because I'm like, I, how am I going to go see them? I have to go see them. Uh, my kids, I've taken my kids uh, my son has seen them five times. My daughter's seen them three. You know, it's a it's a family affair. And now mm. they're turning me on to older Rolling Stone songs that I don't even remember. So uh, that's the interesting part too. So yeah, it's a strange addiction that um, I mean, we all have hobbies. Mine, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Mine just happened to be some geriatric rockers. <laughs> so what are we at now? What number? Come oh, on, fess up. Yeah, thirty. I've seen them thirty times. Okay. Yeah, so that's quite a few. But, uh, you yeah. know, I've, well, I've had some pretty awesome, uh, like somebody was on Twitter had put that I need to get a life. And I was like, oh, boy, you do not know me. <laughs> I've had a pretty good life. <laughs> I mean, I'm, they did an IMAX film, uh, and I'm in that. I'm front row at Wembley Stadium in their IMAX movie. And, you know, I met uh, the whole backup band and, and got them to perform on stage here in Edmonton. And then they were all pointing at me and you know, shouting Donovan the next concert because I was in the front. And, uh, you know, I met Charlie Watts with me and John Lithgow met Charlie Watts at the Madison Square Gardens. And, you know, so those are life experiences that are super yeah. important. Uh, I've gotten to travel all over uh, for my hobby. It's I could stay in my basement and play with trains or I could fly all over the world uh, with 80,000 people watching and singing to uh you know, a, an amazing band that I love. So yeah, I choose yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, good choice. Yeah. I say good choice. Yeah, well, I always, I always you need my validation. <laughs> I tell my kids, I'm like, travel, and you'll never be racist because you will see how great the world is and how uh, our differences are are the what makes us special as humans. And uh, so I love to travel. So I yeah. So Donovan, you mentioned your kids, and 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 I I know you adore these these two kids. Yeah, um, they're all right. <laughs> but don't we all? 
Don't, well, uh, I, I, yes. I, if I'd met your kids, I know I'd love them. I know I love my kids. <laughs> yes, but I've only I've only been to one Stones concert yeah. with one of my sons. So hey, that's um, pretty good. Uh, you know, pretty good. Right on. <laughs> uh, so, uh, talk to me about what what you have what 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 your kids have taught you. Jeez, uh, what have my kids taught me? I, I guess they've really taught me it's okay to make mistakes. Uh, you know, that you can do something stupid and they'll forgive you. Uh, and you can be a better person that way, uh, to learn from your mistakes, uh, patience. You know what I love about that? What I love about that is that that sounds like what parents might hope their kids have learned from them. But I really love that it, that, that, that that your first response to that was, um, actually it, it, it very much is circular. Yeah. Well, I've learned more from them, I think, than they've learned from me, for sure, you know. And the funny thing is with my kids, right now there's something weird happening, uh, especially with my daughter right now because she's 19, and it skipped a generation. So my daughter is all of a sudden, out of nowhere, really – not out of nowhere, in, for a few years now, really into gardening and and fishing. And I'm like, I hate both of those things. But – my parents, my mom had the biggest green thumb and she always had a huge garden and my dad loved to fish and my parents were older. So my kids never got a chance to really do either of those things with my parents. Um, so I think it's just this weird genetic hmm. thing. And so I'm like just in awe and shocked and surprised um, at her passion. And that's another thing they've taught me too is, and I think I've taught them that and it's, we're just an echo chamber for, uh, you know, it's like reverb. So I learn from them and they learn from me and it just builds and builds and builds, but, uh, passion. And I think that's, I hope that's what I taught them. Um, if you love something, go a hundred percent, there's no point. And that's what makes art, right? Love me or hate me. I don't care. I'm producing something that's art. If I'm uh, just okay, who cares? Right. Uh, and so they've, really captured that when they find something they like um i will support them 100 percent, no matter what it is my daughter at 16 decided she wanted a tattoo i was like you've thought it through i know you're still young and maybe you don't it might change but let's you know that's what you want let's do it and i went and got one with her so uh and that was uh you know my son is into clothing and textiles and reselling clothes so i take him to we drive all over the province going to secondhand thrift stores um, once a month or once every few months. And uh, he's taught me what to look for when I'm buying shoes or uh, Levi jeans or kind of his big thing. So I teach them um, what I know. And then in turn, I support them in their passion and then they teach me what they know. And I think it, I think that keeps us young. I don't know. It keeps us yeah. learning, which is important. I, I would say, I think that's wonderful. So I want to just, scoop back at some point earlier in this conversation, you had acknowledged that, you know, and, and this is nothing new. This is the history of performance that the, the funny guys um, might not be given the, their fair due, right. They're, they're, they're the credit for, for being uh, as brilliant as we, as we know they are. You yeah. also made the connection between fear and uh, an excitement. And I, I would, suggest there is the exact same connection biologically between tears and laughter. So that, that 
that human balancing act. What have you found to be the hardest part of comedy, though? What it, what what it, what it makes it hard? Well, yeah, being funny is hard. It is not easy to be funny, and um, if you yeah, if you try to be funny, that's the death of comedy, right? If you're a funny person, it'll come out. And I think it's trusting. It goes back to trust. It's trusting yourself. And I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. This is RuPaul talking, but we all have that inner saboteur, um, that inner voice that tells us we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, we're not smart enough. Um, and it's really hard to get over that. And that voice gets louder and louder as you get older, um, or as you get better at something too. Um, you know. When we become, or we, you know, we, when we, the more we learn, the more we know we don't know, right? The less we actually know, I guess, is, I don't know how to say it, but it's, that's the thing. The more we know about something. So there's something, I think that's why 20 year olds become amazing rock stars and, and, uh, you know, great actors and stuff like that at that age. It's not because they're super talented. I mean, they are, but a lot of people are very talented but they just don't know that they're not that brilliant. And so they have that excellent confidence to go and conquer the world. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that kind of goes away as you get older and it becomes harder to, uh, but then on the, on the flip side, you learn to settle in and trust yourself. So we may not have the energy we had when we were younger, but our brain is, is sharper and, and better. So I'm 52 now and I think I'm probably, uh, the best improviser that I've ever been. I'm the sharpest. I'm the quickest. I'm the wittiest. Um, and it's not because I have the most energy and it's not because my brain is firing super fast, but it's, I know how to utilize my tool now um, mm. way more than when I was 20 and just flailing around with, you know, that rock and roll energy. Um, yeah. And so uh, I, well, geez, so what was your original question? What's the hardest thing about being funny is trusting yourself and just letting it go. and and uh, yeah, if you're funny, be funny. And if you're not, that's okay. You can be an accountant or a lawyer. Well, and a, and a, and you could be a very funny one too. I yeah, mean, is, what I love about what, what, what you said there was, again, as you were finding your way through, I heard you talking about being funny and being alive. And both, both of them in, invite us to, to wrestle with that trusting ourselves piece, right? Yeah. Um, well, then it goes back the, to my the, family too, right? Like, I mean, that's what they did. They were so full of joy, um, especially moving to Canada when they came from nothing and hardship and stuff. Uh, the joy they had in celebrating the life that they had. They didn't worry about being happy. Uh, they just made the best of what they had. And I think a lot of people forget that that's a thing to do as well. On our next episode of Ellipses Thinking... Artist C.L. Bow shares how her sound-to-color painting practice is the direct result of her discovering and then embracing her experience with synesthesia, a condition where the brain mixes up the senses and stimulation of one sensory pathway, leading to automatic, involuntary experiences in a second sensory pathway. In C.L.'s case, when she listens to music, she feels color and sees shapes. I hope you will tune in next week for my conversation with C.L. Bow. 
I want to circle back one more time to this sense of, of the link that so many of us make with improvisation. And you talked about being at, you know, at a, at a stage of mastery in that, that you're feeling really on your game and comedy and mm -hmm. that we link those two together. So often I know that for myself, when I was training as an actor, I was terrified of improvisation because I made that direct yeah. connection to, well, yeah. I'm not funny. Yeah. And, I, and, and then I think we can get stuck there, right? It's, yeah. it's the terror that some audience members uh, sitting in a, in a venue go, oh my God, he's going to engage me and I am going to, you know, yeah. freak out. Or, and we or certainly, just, yeah, as an improviser, you don't have to be funny. That's not the goal. I, I mean, it is when you're doing improv comedy, but um, to learn improv is to learn to listen, right? It is the key. And that's the tool of an actor. The number one tool of an actor is your ability to, um, you know, it's kind of cliche, but it's to react. It's to take in information. And the more you know, the more you're sucking in with your eyes and your ears and your heart, the easier it is for you to react. Um, you know, and that goes for any situation. That's why your dentist um, can improvise when there's a mistake in when he's fixing your teeth. It's because he knows so much about dentistry um, that he can't get lost. Right. And so that's what we do as improvisers is we take in so much information that no matter what situation we're in, we can live in that moment and make it as real as possible and doesn't have to be funny. Absolutely not. I mean, I did dynasty for 20 years, uh, which is an improvised soap opera. And, and a lot of those scenes were very, very heartfelt um, and sweet and innocent and honest and real uh, and amazing. And it's, Yeah. It's art, you know, to be able to change who you are and then live in that other person's reality and to make people uh, interested and to make them feel something instantly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm hearing, and I just want you to sum this up. You're in an elevator. You're with a person who you, you need to actually uh, take your course on uh, improvisation to make their life a better oh thing. God. The elevator pitch, as they call it. What's the pitch? How are you going to sell that person? How are you going to sell me uh, on, on, on... To, to do an improv class? Oh my God. I don't, I don't, could I do an uh, elevator pitch for improv? Um, do you want to be a better listener, uh, a better... Um, uh, being positive is the most important thing in our lives. And I can teach you to do that in an hour. Maybe. In an hour. Sure. I think I can do it. it. In, I, I can do it in five minutes. I think you've done it in 30 <laughs> minutes. I'm looking at the, at the clock right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. I think the key is, yeah, I can teach you to be more positive uh, in your life. And yeah, wouldn't take long. doesn't take very long. And who, and who wouldn't sign up? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, yeah, a lot of people are afraid of change and change is hard. Um, so they get in a world where it's easier to say no, because then you're safe. You're not you don't have to put yourself out there. And it's we talked about this a little bit earlier, but when jokes used to be mean spirited and we, uh, you know, from when you're a kid, um, it's hard to put yourself out there because 
you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to be wrong. Right. And when I teach kids improv, I'm like, accept those three, three things and you'll be a better adult. Accept that you're going to make a mistake. Accept that you're going to look foolish sometimes. Um, you know, you're going to be wrong. Those are okay things. That means you're trying something new. That means you're learning. And if you can get over that as a child, you won't have that problem with an, as an adult. Because I tell kids and I tell adults, that never goes away, right? So we get conditioned as kids to worry about making a mistake and being wrong and looking foolish. Um, and because you don't want those things. And as parents, we're bad at that, right? We're like, hey, settle down. Stop doing that. Don't look crazy. Um, and then what happens? We end up with a bunch of adults that um, won't take chances, right? They have to try really, really hard to get out of their comfort zone. And it usually takes something um, like a big change in, in, in somebody's life, a realization that they're getting old, uh, a divorce, whatever it is, a medical scare. Uh, there's something that will switch people and they will start trying new things because they realize that they have nothing to lose, right? And only things to gain. But um, if we could teach people that earlier, teach kids that that inner clown is the most important person in your life, They'll be better adults. Something shifts. Something big. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, I've been sitting thinking about a question around a favorite character that you have created out of nothing. But I'm worried that in asking the question, I'm suggesting that the joy is in holding on to a character for a long time, as opposed to just creating a, 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 a <laughs> whole bunch of them. But yeah, <laughs> Talk to us about, about somebody you've created that you've been able to live in for a while. Yeah, geez, that's, that's tough for me because everything I do is so instant. Um, and I, we all have kind of go-to voices, go-to mannerisms, you know, that our bodies just naturally want to fall into because of habit, um, and which is fine. But I'm always when I can get in front of a, a, an audience and I feel like I'm cooking and, and, and doing really well, um, my big thing is to push myself as hard as I can and push the audience as hard as they can into accepting something as different, as unusual, or as interesting as I can make it. I want to find a way physically, verbally, emotionally to uh, take them on a journey that they didn't expect to go on, which may sound corny when I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing a corporate gig for General Mills after their dinner entertainment. Um, <laughs> but these are the things that, you know, people, uh, people will go on a journey once they feel comfortable with you. Uh, and who you are. And so I wouldn't say that I have like go-to characters uh, as much as I have uh, a willingness and a desire to uh, go somewhere I haven't gone before. Uh, you know what I love about that, Donovan, is that for those audiences who know you really well, and let's be honest, there are some audiences in in your hometown of, sure. uh, of Edmonton and your province of Alberta, and now probably across the country, who know you well enough yeah. That they almost show up, you know, like like at the Stones concert. I hope they play this song, yeah. this song, and this song yeah. in the set. Yeah. But what I love about what you're dishing here is I want to surprise them. I want to give them something that they don't expect, you know, a, a different variation on or a new arrangement of. And I'm not sure that actors in straight theater have that same sense of agency 
I think so often, at least my experience, and I'll call it out as a bias, but my experience has been that it feels like often they have been cast because that's their wedge. <laughs> well, I mean, that's happened to me too. Um, I shoot so many commercials uh, as the guy, this guy, you know, the guy that screws everything up. Uh, just because of, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, but that's what happens. You know, I'm a short, chubby, middle-aged white guy. Uh, and, uh, so I'm the doofus that is the slob, the guy that makes a mistake or looks foolish. Right. Uh, which is so funny because that is the complete opposite person I am. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very tidy. I'm very neat. Uh, <laughs> and I'm very considerate. Um, <laughs> Especially to those neighbors who now have a Burger Baron sign <laughs> on their block. <laughs> the big lights. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we do get to typecast and uh, it's okay. I try to change up my look every few years so so I can try something new and maybe hit a different audience and uh, or, or get people to see me in a different light. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's definitely a Donovan character that I have kind of perpetuated uh whether it's through my who i am or my antics or you know there's definitely a stage donovan um and uh he's fun i like him he's good um but he's certainly not the the donovan that's off stage which nobody sees or very few people not nobody but few people see uh which is you know i'm a very quiet and shy uh person which is i think probably standard um and uh, going back to what you said about actors that is true i mean i'm doing this uh, musical right now and even i get caught up into that stereotype not just of playing the certain character i'm playing but um i get that that repetitious disease of doing things the same way over again and your brain shuts off and you forget to enjoy it you forget to live in the moment as much you forget to because you're worried about your choreography your dialogue your blocking uh, you know you, you're singing in this case um and so you every now and then i have to uh kind of shake my head or my director gives me notes and i'm like yeah thank you thank you i need that because i want to keep it fresh uh and then of course there's other nights when you're firing uh and you just keep adding jokes or bits or you find something new uh, and those were always, I'll, I'll tell you a story. One time in the nineties, I was doing a fringe run, uh, of a, a play, uh, that I had written with, uh, it was my improv partner, Paul, and then Wes and Joe, uh, from three dead trolls in a bag. We had written a few shows together and we were touring one, um, to the fringes and we had done the show, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 times. We did a run at theater network and, um, we were in Victoria doing the fringe and I got drunk. Uh, in the afternoon before a show. Uh, and I'm not too drunk, but just drunk enough. And it was probably, well, for the audience, I don't know. I can't say. Uh, but for me, it was one of the best shows because I changed up my brain chemistry and I discovered like a million new things. Like things just changed. I saw it through a, a completely different lens. Uh, and I mean, I don't suggest that everybody do that, but um, it it was amazing. It really, really helped me. And I always remember that. I'm like, look at it through a different lens. Try to change it up. What's the key? You know, how do I make this different? So I don't get stuck um, in that same character uh, all the time. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like an unexpected experience has become kind of a metaphoric reminder for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. You need to shift it. And you know, when you were just, when I was just listening to you until you hit the word choreography and, and blocking, <laughs> yeah. you could have been describing the dentist's yeah. day again, right? That sense. And I, and I just, I just want to highlight how, how incredibly valuable that that messaging is, is that it doesn't matter if you're on stage. This is not about being on stage. This is about living a full and enriched life. Well, and one of the amazing things, and I try to teach this when I teach uh, improv to like businesses, uh, I'm like, we so often listen for people to stop talking so we can talk. So we're not, we're hearing, but we're not listening. And it's, you know, 70% of communication is nonverbal. So it's not what people are saying, right? It's, it's their body language. So that's why listening with your eyes is the most important thing you can do, right? So it's like 70 some percent is nonverbal. And then 20% um, is uh how we say words, not the content, but, uh, you know, our intonation. And only 10% of communication are the actual words we are saying, right? So if people could remember that, that because we, we all have friends that talk and talk and talk, but they're not saying anything, right? And so we need to think about that. If you have an idea that you want to convey to somebody, it's more important that you show that with your body language, you show that with your heart, um, and then that other 10% will kind of take care of itself, right? We yeah. always support people that have a passion because uh, people are helpers. And, you know, Mr. Rogers said it, look for the helpers, right? But we want to help people. We just don't know how. Um, and that's why I'm, right now I'm getting a lot of press on this Rolling Stones thing because in this bleak world we're sitting in, all of a sudden there's this weirdo guy from Edmonton who's like, I have this hugest passion for the Rolling Stones. And now I've been on the news like uh, – CBC did an article. I did a radio interview, 630 Chad in Edmonton. I'm going on a radio station in Montreal. I was on the national. And why? Just because I have a passion of, for something. So, you know, the more we care about something, the easier it is for other people to care. And so uh, that's one of the things that I think we lose because we get. That's really lovely. Yeah. So Donovan, we're just about, I'm just about to come to, to the end of this. Uh, I mean, I could, happily sit here with you all, all day. I know you've got um, an opening tonight. Um, I, I want to come to a, I want to come to a final question. And it's one that I've been asking other guests um, of late. Uh, in terms of jump yourself ahead, imaginatively jump two generations ahead. You may not even be here. You're somewhere else yeah. looking back down and, and, and a descendant of Donovan Workin is telling the story about you. What do you hope that story? Well, give me the elevator pitch. Yeah. Of that story. Oh my God. That's a tough one. Hmm. Ah, geez, geez. I, I guess that I have a big heart that I care. Yeah. I think something like that. I think that's important that I care no matter what it was. I care. Yeah. I mean, and that I sounds weird or strange, but yeah, I think it's important. Why? 
I don't know. Is that, Why does it sound strange? I don't know. I guess it's uh, an odd thing to, I guess, hope for the future. But uh, yeah, I think that's what it is. That I, yeah, somebody that cared. I took my time to listen to people, to help people, to be kind. Yeah, because I know my parents were like that. And so, yeah, that's important for me. Going back is just as important as going forward. So in that sense. Lovely. Well, I know that if I were just listening to what I've just listened to, I would be able to say you've, you've, you've given me that sense. <laughs> well, that's good. That's nice. You, you totally have. Oh, good, so I, I'm so thankful for, for your time today. Oh, thank you. This has been great. I really appreciate it. It's awesome. Nice to see you again, too. Ellipses Thinking is a proud member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It is produced by Jordan Dollar-Coltman and Greg Dollar-Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. As a resident of Vancouver Island... I wish to acknowledge that I am a visitor on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of the Snonoas and Qualicum people. The first peoples have been here for over 10,000 years, their ancestors still here with us in the sky, the land, the ocean, and all of the beings that share this sacred place. As a settler, I gratefully embrace the opportunities for growth as integral to my personal journey of collaboration and reconciliation as I learn and further support the possibilities that lay ahead. I remain committed to practicing my craft in a decolonized space.